Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us we have Jay Geller, Associate Professor of Modern Jewish Culture at Vanderbilt Divinity School and the Vanderbilt University Jewish Studies Program. He's here to talk about his new book, Estiarium Judaicum, Unnatural Histories of the Jews, published in 2018 by Fordham University Press. Uh, Jay, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation, and um, I look forward to this time together. Brilliant. Uh, so first off, if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book. Okay, this book emerged out of problems I've been addressing for 30 plus years, um, primarily dealing with Jews in Central Europe. Uh, the irony is that over the last couple of hundred years, as the Jews became more or sought more and more to become integrated into various European societies as they began to become more acculturated, dressing like their their society, um, their language, their culture, absorbing all of this. Oddly, anti-Semitism seemed to increase. So it was as if the more Jews became like Germans, the more and more their difference seemed to be emphasized. Um, and so I was concerned with what was going on. How is it that they can be rendered different even as they seem to be more the same? What's happening there? Um, Freud talks about the narcissism of minor differences. The, that is, that the cause, one of the causes of anti-Semitism is that they are too close, too much of a, a threat to the identity of the dominant group. And so what, hap- what the dominant group has to do is render that other visible. How do you render that difference visible, especially as you're looking more and more like themselves. Um, And also during this time, as you're trying to render them visible, difference is now being defined biologically. In other words, if there is a difference, it must be biological, it must be universal. What sort of universal difference can you discover among Jews? How can you render them visible? Well, the one thing that seemed to be universal among Jews was something that was universal among male Jews. Now, they weren't born this way. It was something that they picked up when they were about eight days old. 
which was circumcision. And in Europe, it was almost exclusively Jews who would be circumcised. So here was a seemingly universal characteristic of Jewish men. And after all, at this point, the man, the male was the universal. And so you'd be able to distinguish Jews from non-Jews by the circumcised penis. But there's a problem. In civilized society, men wear pants. Moreover, one doesn't talk about penises. So how do you render visible what is universal but cannot be spoken about and which cannot be shown? How do you render that visible? What I began noticing and focusing upon was the corporeal imagery by which the Jew, this collective singular, this entity was being defined, identified, in order to render that Jewish difference visible. So that was one part. The next part is, how do Jews respond to that? Can they say, you know, you know, take a look at it. I mean, we had Jewish, so-called Jewish race scientists. If you go to the Jewish encyclopedia of the early 20th century, you have sections on the nose and sections on hair. And they were showing statistical uh, studies of showing the nasal index of Jews in different regions and how they compare with other nationalities and among themselves and blonde versus brunettes. And it showed that in many regions, there was really not a major difference between Jewish noses and other noses. And how do you distinguish between a Jewish nose and a Greek nose or a Roman nose or a French nose? So these Differences were, so the Jews were concerned, we have to get rid of this visibility, and yet it persisted. The racial argument didn't help, the so-called scientific argument didn't help, the statistical argument didn't help. One thing which many Jewish writers did was, what if we can rework that language about the Jewish body, neutralize its force? So my first two books, one dealing with Freud and his language of, uh, of the body, of circumcision, of castration, of relationship of, of Jews and gender, and my second book, uh, The Other Jewish Question, which dealt with a variety of, of individuals who recognized that they were identified as Jews and what, how would they kind of use this language which had been used against Jews as ways of both sort of dealing with their situation. Uh, not necessarily against Jews. So, for instance, I have a, you know, a long chapter on Marx, who never identified as a Jew, but knew he was identified as a Jew, but who used language that was applied to Jews as sort of building blocks because he was familiar with this. Okay, so you have these individuals attempting to use this language and rework this language, but it was on the body that I was dealing with. Now, during this time when I was doing all this research, whether it was on Heine or Kafka, Freud and others, especially dealing with images of phallic suggestibility like tails, okay? Schwanz. Schwanz uh, is a tail in German, and it's also a um, slang for penis in German. And 
I would notice in writers like Heine and others how they would employ and joke about tales. Um, and so tell, you know, and using animal tales. And what I was thinking, when I was applying to uh, these works, I was always seeing the animal tail as a subset of the human penis, okay? So I was not focusing on animals. I wasn't focusing on human-animal difference. It was Jewish-Gentile difference, dealing with the Jewish body, and the association with the animal tail provided means into this. Now, let's shift. I'm teaching a course on film and religion. And for this course, students have to write a paper a week about the film and tie it into uh, readings and religious studies. And I received the paper before the class discussion. I had one student who was really into critical animal studies. He was a vegan. He was giving wherever he looked. And in all of his uh, papers on these films, he was seeing animals. And I had to go back over these films because I wasn't seeing those animals. But when I went back and looked at these films, there they were. They were may not be in the central position that he held them to be, but there was this discourse about animals. There were animal images and animals all around the margins. And I suddenly became more attentive to that, you know, just as there is this overlap of Jew and Gentile, male and female, white and black, class difference, sexuality difference, there is also human-animal difference. And just as male-female difference was a means by which one could sustain and maintain Gentile-Jewish difference, I began to recognize how human-animal difference was also a means of sustaining Gentile-Jewish difference. And began to recognize that when individuals like Heine and Kafka and Freud and whoever were employing these animal analogies, these animal figures, yes, they were talking about human body parts, but they were also talking about human-animal difference. And it was that insight that led me both to go back to some of the early work that I did and separate that out in terms of focusing on the human-animal difference, and then to attend to other writers and how they were dealing with human-animal, you know, how they were dealing with this fact that for millennia, Gentiles had been employing figures of animals, vermin, dogs, apes, you name it, all negatively so as to uh, debase, to humanize, justify persecution of Jews. But what's going on now when Jews are telling animal stories? Is it just a matter of you know, in, uh, in, incorporating, interjecting these anti-Jewish images and engaging in self-hatred? Or is there more stake? Are they engaging with these animal figures as I had been discussing in my earlier works about how they were employing the language of corporeality, of Jewish corporeality, to sort of undercut the force that was seeking to maintain these hierarchical power differences between the dominant Gentile society and Jewish society and Jewish individuals.
And that was what, how it sort of unfolded. And the and all of a sudden, I just began noticing it in all sorts of places. And people would advise me after one talk, um, uh, somebody in the audience came up to me and asked me if I heard of Felix Zaltan. And I said, no, who's Felix Zaltan? And, and she said, he's the Jewish author of Bambi. Now, all I knew from Bambi was the Disney movie. And so I then said, okay, I have to check out Zaltan and discover this. You know, he's an incredible figure. Of um, He was a... a a leading, he was an Austrian uh, journalist, writer, um, Zionist, chair stages with Martin Buber in uh, pre-World War One uh, Central Europe. Uh, in the night, uh, in the late 1920s, 1930s, he was um, head of Penn, um, and he wrote animal stories, animal novels. Bambi, Bambi was a worldwide bestseller in 1923 and I encountered it and it was remarkable work and a lot different than Walt Disney's anyway so there's lots of stories about Zoltan I could talk about but the key thing that happened as I was working on Zoltan was there began to emerge individuals wanting to read Zoltan as a Jewish writer reading Bambi as a Jewish novel and I read through this and was aware of, of the influences of, 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 of Zoltan's Jewish situation. He had to flee Austria in 1938 uh, and found refuge in Switzerland, luckily because his daughter had married a Swiss national. Anyway, and I was reading the, these Jewifications of Bambi and it just didn't quite work with, I mean, these were not good readings of Bambi. Yes, I could see how Zoltan's situation had influenced his writing, but there were so many aspects of the novel and of Bambi's character that rendered, they're just, just these readings did not work. So yes, there is a Jewish aspect to this, but you cannot read Bambi as a Jewish novel. Or as I put it, you know, just as Freud said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. So too, sometimes a doe is just a female deer. That is, there's a whole lot going on in Bambi beyond an attempt to do any sort of Jewish allegory, and it's not an allegorization. So I wanted to explore not just that Jews were responding or drawing upon these imageries to sort of counter this situation, to work through their situation, uh, at times to neutralize the force of this anti-Jewish rhetoric, but also to recognize the specificity, the different ways in which they do it, how an author over the course of his or her career, how it may change based on the change of the historical situation, based on the kinds of imagery that he chose. And I felt what I attempted to do in my work in, in Bestiatium was to, to deal with the very specifics of this. And I realized as I was writing this, that um, I had to also, initially I was going to 
going to do a few paragraphs about you know the the background of this millennia long tradition of anti Jewish imagery of the this construction of the Jew animal. Uh, but I then realized that I really had to unpack it. So actually, I devoted a chapter, entire chapter, to dealing with this history. But the bulk of it was to deal with this response. But you needed to know to what they were responding. Um, there was also concerned with how one goes about doing this kind of scholarship, because focusing on Jewish animals or to focus on these figures and images, yeah, it's you know this isn't how people normally will read, except in you know you know often it, it looks like it's this sort of uh, you know bellette, you know isn't this interesting? You know, look at all these animal imageries. Well, you know, whereas what I was trying to do is these are public interventions. How can I talk about somebody telling an animal story as a public intervention? Um, so I knew I had to have solid scholarship. I had to be able to create a reasonable argument that I wasn't just saying, look, here they say bad things about Jews. Here is this figure. Here's Heine talking about, you know, mice. You know, therefore, he must be responding to it. Well, no, that doesn't work. It's not a match game. It's not just a matter of finding correspondences. You have to show how in the specificity of how this figure is shaped in the context out of which he is writing that you can see that, yes, this indeed may well be a public intervention. You just simply can't say Jews aren't animals, that Jews aren't mice if you're a Jew because they're going to respond, well, what else are you going to say? You're a Jew. Or you can't just say, well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well, you know, maybe dogs, but dogs are good. Dogs are honorable. Dogs are loyal. You know, to which they'll respond, well, yeah, there are good dogs and there are bad dogs. There are dogs that eat their own vomit, and that's the kind of dog Jews are. So you can't respond that way. You have to find ways in a way to not so much say that dogs are good, but that the human animal difference, that by which you can render a bad dog as other, how to render that difference problematic. And if you can render that human animal difference and who is the animal refers to and who the human refers to as undecidable, then perhaps you're also making an intervention into Gentile Jewish difference. And to render that seeming natural Gentile Jewish difference to be perhaps not quite so natural, not quite so clear cut, quite uncertain. You cannot change the rules. You cannot say now all of a sudden things are going to be great and now we're going to liberate society, but you can perhaps neutralize the force. You can perhaps create the conditions where sometime in the future we can rethink the relationships among groups, among Gentiles and Jews, men and women, humans and animals, whites and blacks, etc. Maybe we can just dive right into the book. And if you could tell us a little bit about Kafka and his non-human animal protagonists, Gregor and Justine. Josephine, the, the mouse singer. Okay. Very different works. Yeah. The Metamorphosis was written at 
the beginning, more or less, of his public writing career, 1912, published finally in 1915. And Josephine was his last, the last story that he completed, the last story that was published during his lifetime. So they're quite different. What is striking about both of them is that you have really no idea who or if Gregor Zamza, what he becomes. He describes himself, as, or the narrator describes, woke up one morning to discover that he was a, you know, a giant, a, a, a monstrous ver, a vermin, a, a monstrous vermin. A vermin? There, you know, rats are vermin, mice are vermin, crickets are vermin, lights are vermin. What's a vermin? He's never described as an insect. He's one time described as this brown thing. You have these images of his legs and of his body, but there's no particular beetle. He's certainly not a cockroach. There's no particular beetle that he fits. At one point, the uh, housekeeper refers to him as uh, an old dung beetle. Okay. Uh, uh, Miss Kefa. Okay. Well, okay. How he describe how Gregor is described does not fit any dung beetle, and dung beetles tend to be black. The only color that he's ever given is brown. And but there's another aspect, referring to him as a an alta miskefer. Okay, when my younger brother was a little kid, my aunt would always refer to him as a little Vance. Okay, a Vance is a bed bug. Okay, because he was always scurrying underfoot. It's kind of an endearment, but it's also a kind of, you know, you're a nuisance. Okay? Among German speakers at the turn of the, the last century, uh, uh, Miss Kefa was uh, kind of like a Vance. It was a kind of, you know, you're, you're underfoot, you're a nuisance. So, it doesn't necessarily, this is not a species identification, okay? So it's never really figured as what he is. I can go into more detail about this, but we have a short amount of time. But that's okay. But what I want to focus here is on the undecidability of what he is. And indeed, when the press wanted to put a picture of an insect on the cover, Kafka was insistent, no illustration. He did not want his readers to have a picture of who Craigor Samsa was. Okay. Now we're dealing with Josefina. Okay. So he wants to keep Gregor Samsa undefined. And indeed, uh, and, and other things, uh, the language that he employs, the only time that Gregor uh, Samsa is never really, is uh, identifies himself as as a as an animal is when he's listening near the end to his sister playing the violin and he says uh it's you know it's 
as if he was an animal who was soothed by music. In other words, he isn't, you know, it's, it's, yeah, and it's at this point when he, as it were, has restored his humanity, his appreciation of music and of culture is when the only time he had this kind of animal imagery. And there, there are others throughout this. So I explore those as well as remarkable pronoun usage on the part of Kafka. But let's shift to Josephine. When Josephine was first published in Praga Pressa, which was a, a local Prague newspaper, the title of it was Josephine, um, the singer, Josephine de Zengeren. Okay. It was not Josephine, the singer, or the mouse folk. It was just Josephine, the singer. After it was published, at this point, Kafka is dying of tuberculosis of the throat. He cannot speak. He's just writing notes. And he goes to his to Max Broad and to others, and he, and he writes this note. He wants to change it when it gets published in the collection that at this point he's proofing. He wants the title to be changed from Josephine the Singer to Josephine the Singer or the Mouse Folk. And he says, what's most important is the odorzatz, the or sentence, the or sub, or title. Okay. So what's going on here? Why is this so important? During the entire text, the folk are never identified as mice. They're never described in any way as mice. In fact, the only time that a mouse in, in German, mouse, M-A-U-S, the only time these letters, mouse, show up in this text is when he describes a concert by Josefina and how people are in the audience are motion still, quiet as mice. And it's then followed... It was to be quiet as mice was to be most unlike the folk. In other words, they were most unlike themselves when they were quiet as mice. Also, his mice fiffen, they pipe. Well, virtually all the other instances when Kafka in his letters, in his diaries, and in whenever mice show up in his stories, they don't fife. They don't, they, they tzishin, they, they, you know, they, whatever mice do. You know, they do not pipe. So there are all of these various imageries. At one point, actually, um, Josefina raises her arms, which mice also do not have. Um, so there's no reference to them as mice. Um, no association. And mice and uh, uh, was, was among the kinds of negative Jewish images that have appeared. Uh, Wilhelm Marr, in one of his anti-Semitic notebooks, had this, uh, the title of it was um, uh, Rot, uh, 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 Golden Ratten und Roten Mäuse, which was golden uh, rats and red mice. So the capitalists were the gold rats and the, the, the anarchists and the communists and the Bolsheviks, uh, in this case the, the communists, the uh, anarchists were the red mice and they would nibble at, at, the, at the, the bottom, the foundation of, of a house which would cause it to fall. Okay, so you have these, but never once are they described as mice. But my feeling was that Kafka would 
assume that with other descriptions of the folk that his readers would assume that as Max Braun said, of course they're Jews. Moreover, it would identify them as, as mice. And so by situating, and even though there's no reference to them as mice in this text, by situating that or, te- that or title, or can mean a disjunction. It can mean, you know, this or that. You can view them as this or that. Or it can render that uncertain. In other words, both parts uncertain. You're not sure whether or not we're dealing with a singer, which one assumes to be human, or mouse, you know, the mouse folk or mice. So it renders this force of this imagery of Jews as vermin uncertain. But there's a danger because it also reproduces the imagery of Jews as vermin. So this is this other game that Kafka is playing and that others are playing. This is a very dangerous thing. You have to use, when you're fighting fire with fire, you can get burnt, you can get scorched. If you use the language that's employed against you, you may your effort may be to neutralize it, but it, you have no control over how it's going to be interpreted. It could be used as reinforcing. And indeed has been in some readings of Kafka as to to insinuate some sort of Jewish self-hatred in Kafka because of using imagery of mice or vermin or monkeys or apes or lizards, as opposed to examining in detail how, when he's describing somebody like Red Peter, what's going on there in this particular ape figure, or Gregor Zamsa with this vermin figure, or the folk of Josephina. So do, do, do you see this kind of tension that I'm trying to describe, this, this incredible risky game that Heine is playing, that Kafka is playing, that others were playing? And the attempt to try to thwart this force being employed against you and your lawnsmen and your, your fellows may actually be proliferating that imagery. You might indeed be making the situation worse. But your tools are limited. But you need to exercise, attempt to exercise agency where it's possible. I hope this answers in part your question. Yeah, um, that's fantastic. Uh, well, I think that even though we haven't gone through sort of chapter by chapter all the content in the book, that I mean, that would probably take a very long time. We've definitely managed to hit upon um, a lot of the major themes, and I think you've given um, the listeners a great sort of uh, taste of some of the, the um, literary analysis that's um, in your book. So we might leave it there in terms of discussing uh, the book. But before we let you go, um, would you be able to tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? And now for something completely different. Yeah, I mean, literally completely different. Um, that's what I've been working on these last, I mean, I just spent the day going through um Holocaust survivor testimonies. 
my new work, my new project is dealing with um, circumcision and male human survival in the Holocaust. Um, and if you go through testimonies, memoirs, fictions, and occasion, there's periodic mention of the threat that circumcision presented to Jewish male survival. As I talked about earlier, you know, there is no biological ground for some universal Jewish trait. How do you identify the Jews when you're out to trying to round them up? But in Central Europe, and particularly Eastern Europe, the only group who was, the only individuals who were circumcised were male Jews, very few Muslims. Um, and it was assumed to be universal. So very often, if a male Jew sought to hide, they had a very simple test, not unlike what the Ephraimites were confronted at the River of Jordan when they were trying to escape, when they were asked to say Shibbolech. And when they said Shibbolech, they knew they were Ephraimites, and that was the end of them. So it was with male Jews. Pull down their pants, find the circumcision, and it was a death sentence. Male anatomy was destiny. But there's been no study of this. It's just been of anecdotal interest. So what I've begun doing is going through memoirs and fictions and films and witnesses and exploring this and amassing. Right now I have, you know, uh, it's, it's just, you know, uh, well, at, at this point, and I'm just at the beginning of my study and I've, uh, and I've just dealt with streaming and, and the indexes, uh, which just have index terms and you're therefore you're at the mercy of indexes. But with possible clues, I found, you know, and just English, just English language, well over 600 of the uh, testimonies on um, the Shoah Foundation's uh, uh, visual uh, history um, archive uh, that I'm going to be exploring. And the diff and I've already hear, heard just a variety of different, you know, those were the kinds of stories they've made, the kinds of physical efforts, the strategies that they've attempted to try to avoid uh, being found out or the relief uh, expressed by some that their parents had not circumcised them. So I'm, uh, this, this is the project that I am working on. And actually, if you don't mind me just adding one little bit, which actually reflects back to um, my previous projects. May I? Mm. Yeah. Um, until this work, I have avoided generally, it's certainly my monographs, except for the afterward in um, – my in bestiatium, avoiding the Holocaust. I wanted to, this notion of looking at, I wanted to avoid any suggestion that are seeing the Holocaust as the culmination of this, the longest hatred, that, that there was a necessity for the Holocaust based on Jewish anti-Semitism. Okay? I was avoiding it, so I avoided that. However, 
uh, at a conference, I gave a paper on Gertrude Kolmar, who was a um, German Jewish poet who died in Auschwitz. Uh, second cousin, actually, of Walter Benjamin, maybe a first cousin. Uh, and she wrote incredible poems which drew upon women, Jews, and animals. And so I, I described her work. And these were poems written actually prior to uh, 1938. Nevertheless, in the question and answer session, the first question was, well, was it because of the animalization of the Jews during the Shoah that you are exploring the question of Jews and animals? And I'd never even thought of that. I was just blown away. And I began to realize that people are going to think that this work, and as they thought of my early works, that this is a whole response to the Shoah. And it wasn't. It was you know, dealing with the other stuff. So I've never really dealt with the Shoah. I've taught it in classes for 30 years, but I've never really had a sustained research project dealing with the Shoah. As I said, I've tried to avoid it. But here's this question that, have, that has nagged me ever since I was actually encountered as an undergrad in a uh, memoir by Yaakov Lin, where here was this randy young teenager who had, who's you know hiding by actually going from Amsterdam into the heart of Germany um, and trying to avoid being recognized with a circumcised penis for being an adolescent. You know, he eventually caught an STD. And so here was the scene of his going to a doctor and just trying to explain away his circumcision, that image just sort of stuck with me and always just kind of been in the back of my mind and in teaching, I've encountered this image periodically. And now with these other projects done, I think it's time for me to now explore this. And rather than dealing with primarily, primary literature and historical social context for literature, I'm now dealing more with these very explicit experiences and and the discourse, the languages, the testimony, the very witness to these experiences, uh, at least those that we can, that can be relayed by survivors. So that's my new project. Great. Well, that sounds like um, a really interesting project, and we uh, certainly hope to have you back on New Books in Jewish Studies um, to discuss uh, hopefully the book that comes out of that project in the future. But um, for the meantime, thanks very much for joining us today. Um, you. So you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies uh, with your host, Max Kaiser. Uh, and today we had Jay Geller, Associate Professor of Modern Jewish Culture at Vanderbilt Divinity School and the Vanderbilt University Jewish Studies Program. And he talked to us about his new book, Bestiarium Judaicum, Unnatural Histories of the Jews, published in 2018 by Fordham University Press. Thanks very much. Thank you.